Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thank you to our sponsor, Zai, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Today's book aims to unpack the neuroscience of reward and in doing so enable us to find a better, healthier balance between pleasure and pain. But neuroscience is not enough. We also need the lived experience of human beings. Who better to teach us how to overcome compulsive overconsumption than those most vulnerable to it, people with addiction. Whether it's sugar or shopping, voyeuring or vaping, social media posts or the Washington Post, we all engage in behaviors we wish we didn't, or to an extent we regret. This book offers practical solutions for how to manage compulsive overconsumption in a world where consumption has become the all-encompassing motive of our lives. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of this book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Overconsumption, Dr. Anna Lemke. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I absolutely love the book as a parent, as an athlete, as somebody who's probably addicted to training in the past, certainly, and as a human being, understanding how all of this works was just an absolute joy. So we have an hour and 40 minutes today together, and I want to get the most into our audience's brain so it can help impact their lives as much as possible. I'll start us off with a quote, Anna, if that's okay. Yeah. You say, addiction broadly defined is the continued and compulsive consumption of a substance or behavior, gambling, gaming, sex, despite its harm to self and to others. And while you open with the story of Jacob and the masturbation machine, you also reveal your own addiction to fantasy romance novels. And I thought that was a useful place to start because it's seemingly tame, but it had all the hallmarks of addiction and you recognize this and you reveal this throughout the book. Yeah, I so I, you know, it was really a gamble to open the book with the story of my patient who developed a very severe sex pornography and compulsive masturbation uh, addiction. Um, but I decided to do it because I, I, first of all, I wanted to bring attention to what is a growing problem um, all over the world, which is pornography, sex, and masturbation addiction. And there's this, a whole added layer of shame, you know, in the era of hashtag me too. But I also wanted to draw a parallel between my own, uh, you know, minor addiction uh, that I developed to uh, romance novels in my early 40s in order to highlight the ways in which we've all become vulnerable to the problem of compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. Um, and, you know, my, my problem, um, you know, first of all, I was somebody who I, I thought that I was immune to the problem of addiction. You know, alcohol just makes me tired and gives me a headache. Caffeine doesn't wake me up. I wish that it did. Um, I'm not somebody who tends to go to extremes. Um, you know, except maybe in you know, a little bit in work. Um, that's probably something that I, I continue to try to find the balance in and struggle with. But in general, you know, I thought, oh, well, that, that addiction gene, that skipped me. Um, but the truth was, I just hadn't yet met my drug of choice. And my drug of choice turned out to be uh, this kind of fantasy fiction available, you know, uh, on a Kindle uh, at, at the touch uh, of, of my fingertip. 
at a particular time in life when, you know, really I was very comfortable and had, you know, had everything I had ever wanted in life and more. So it wasn't like I was escaping, you know, something in my life. It was that uh, this has become a very engaging drug, which is to say reading, like here's something that I think, you know, we think of as healthy, right? And that that's sort of the point that even things that we think of as healthy have now become drugified and have 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 created the potential for compulsive overconsumption because basically we we've you know we've engineered we've kind of cracked the code on motivation and reward so you know i started out with the twilight saga um which is a vampire romance novel written for teenagers i was you know in middle age and it was just transportive for me um and led me to a whole world of romance novels that i hadn't known existed because for whatever reason i hadn't discovered them as a teenager, which led to really a pattern of compulsive overconsumption, spending more and more time reading, you know, uh, staying up late at night reading, waking up hungover and tired the next day. And then over time, needing more potent forms of my drug, which is classic for the evolution of addiction, where your drug at the given dose stops working and you need more and more to get the same effect. So I progressed from you know, teenage vampire novels to Frank erotica over the course of about two years. Um, and then was at a point where I was reading all the time. I was reading, you know, at any moment that I had downtime, I was, uh, I was reading at parties. I remember going to a party and finding a quiet room so I could read. And uh, I was even reading one day at work in between patients, you know, I had like 10 minutes between patients. And I just wanted to escape into this fantasy world. And it really, I didn't, I would sort of joke about it, but I really didn't see it for what it was, which was a burgeoning addiction. So in draw, in opening with that and drawing that parallel, you know, between myself and this, uh, my patient with, a, you know, what anybody could recognize as so severe form of psychopathology, I was really wanting to kind of own and acknowledge the ways in which we've all become a little bit addicted. What I loved about that was your radical honesty. I, I was saying this to you before we came on air, that it seems sometimes surprising to stumble upon a whole chapter in a book on dopamine and addiction. And there's a chapter, a whole chapter on radical honesty. And I felt by opening up with that story, and it's a red thread throughout it, you mentioned it several times as we progress through the book, and you build the structures about understanding addiction, that your own radical honesty brought us closer to you as an audience reading the book as well. But that's the point you say about radical honesty, because we live in a society where there's personification, I, I mean that in the Greek sense of the mask with the persona, this false person that we put on, particularly in an age of social media. And you say, if you lean into the radical honesty, you bring others closer to you. And I'm jumping right to the end of the book here, but I'm just conscious of our time. And I think it's a nice fit. Maybe we'll start with that. Yeah, well, thanks for highlighting that. That's actually one of my favorite chapters in the book. And it does come at the end. So I always kind of worry people won't get to it. Um, but you know, that's radical honesty is something I learned directly from my patients. First of all, let me back up and say that I grew up in a household where the truth was kind of fungible. So, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of good modeling around truth telling. Um, um, and so, you know, uh, and the average adult, uh, tells one to two lies per day. Usually these are kind of minor lies sort of protecting our own vanity or shortcomings. 
And I was certainly uh, guilty of that. I'm still guilty of that. But um, I think that there, you know, there were even instances that I look back on my life with a lot of shame, things, bigger things that I had lied about. Um, and it, it wasn't, well, partially it was my husband who, who, who has this very firm grounding in the truth. And that's helped me a lot. And we've been married for 27 years, something like that. Um, but also my patients, they taught me a lot because what I started to notice is that the patients who got into recovery from addiction and were really able to stay in good recovery were patients who had hit on this fundamental truth, which was that they needed to tell the truth. And they needed to tell the truth, not just about their consumption of their drug, but they needed to tell the truth about everything in their lives. Because if they didn't, they were at huge risk to relapse. So I thought that was really interesting. Like what, what is it about truth-telling that helps people not engage in their addictive behaviors? And, you know, through, through the, like the, neuro, the neuroscience and sort of just reflecting on this, I, I think I hit on a couple, you know, important reasons why. One of them you already mentioned is that we think when we tell people like the, the ways that we've engaged in shameful behavior that they're going to shrink away from us. But in fact, the opposite happens. It really opens up this door to kind of communal sharing and a kind of deep um, soulful connection in which we all recognize our brokenness uh, and our, our shared humanity. And, and that's really wonderful. And it's so funny how we don't realize that. And we're so afraid to share these parts of ourselves, but when we do, it really does bring people closer. And of course that closeness is an important so source of healthy dopamine, right? An important source of uh, joy. You know, we often talk about intimacy as the antidote to addiction, but we don't really tell people how how to gain intimacy. And one of the surefire ways, as long as you're not doing it, you know, in an exploitative way, but but if you're really, you know, overcoming your shame and giving somebody the gift of transparency, uh, you're giving them a great gift, and it really does foster uh, intimacy and trust and connection. So that's one of the ways it works. Um, but it also works on many other different levels. So in, you know, in psychiatry, what we do is we, we, we're all about narrative and storytelling. And when people tell their stories in therapy, what they're doing is they're uh, organizing past experience. And in organizing past experience, they're coming to insight and understanding. But what I realized, uh, I don't know, about 10 years into my career was that Wow, these stories that there there are healing stories, and then there are stories that are not healing. So the way that we tell our stories is really, really important. And the closer our stories hew to real truth and real life, the more healing these stories are. Furthermore, stories are not just a way to organize past experience; they actually serve as a roadmap for the future. So if we're telling certain types of stories, that are unhealthy stories, we're likely to repeat these unhealthy patterns of behavior going forward. Whereas if we're really digging deep and telling true stories, we have access to much more data that then allows us to make better choices going forward. And I think that's the level on which truth-telling operates, not just in addiction recovery, but in, in our lives more broadly. So for example, the type of story I have heard many times in my career as a psychiatrist is a kind of victim narration where, oh, the reason I drink or, or use pornography or smoke pot 
or gamble is because all of these other people have injured me in, in these varieties of ways. Whenever I hear a patient tell their story like that, I know we are a long way from recovery because not through any effort of my own, just simply through observing people get into recovery, what happens as they go through recovery and get into recovery is that narrative goes away and people start to be able to see the way they contributed to their problems, what they're responsible for. They experience and process a certain amount of shame about past behaviors, and they're willing to sit with that shame and tolerate it and think about how they can make amends. And those are the people who I know are, are going to be able to get into recovery, maintain recovery. So radical truth-telling has this amazing capacity to, um, to help us Again, organize past experience, but also have a roadmap for the future, which is very predictive of our future choices and behaviors. So to me, that, that's really powerful. Another way that radical truth-telling might work based on some of the neuroscientific studies is it might actually stimulate the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is this gray matter area right behind our foreheads. It's so important for storytelling, but also for delayed gratification and understanding future consequences. So there's this great study in the literature where individuals were um, asked to engage in a die rolling task where they rolled the die and they had to guess, you know, what the number would show. And then a computer generated a, a certain number. And if they guessed correctly what the computer showed, they would win a certain amount of money. And what the researchers found was that, um, you know, people lied. Like they didn't lie every time, but they lied about 10% of the time, right? Because they wanted to get more money and there was nobody who was actually looking at what they actually rolled. So about 10% of the time they were like, yeah, I, I got that number so they could win money. Um, and this is consistent with, with the sort of, you know, the studies showing that, yeah, people tell about one to two lies per day, right? But then what they did was they took a transcranial magnetic stimulation machine, which creates an electrical current, and, they, um, and that's been used to treat things like depression, but also things like smoking cessation, although applied to a, a different part of the brain. And they applied that, uh, that electrical current to the prefrontal cortex. So in other words, they stimulated the prefrontal cortex. And then they had people engage in that die rolling task. And what they found was that after stimulating the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain so important for delayed gratification and understanding future consequences, people lied less in this die rolling test. So I thought that was really fascinating because what it suggests is that there's a top-down process where if you stimulate the prefrontal cortex, people are more likely to tell the truth. So I contacted the scientists who did this study and I said, geez, if you know, if stimulating the prefrontal cortex causes people to tell the truth, could actively telling the truth and, you know, effortfully engaging in that, could that actually stimulate the prefrontal cortex? And you know, the researchers said, yeah, they thought that was perfectly po possible. What fires together wires together, which is kind of one of the fundamental theories behind how the brain works. And I think that's possibly what's going on in the way that radical truth telling can be healing. I think it's probably stimulating our prefrontal cortex, which is a way of waking ourselves up, which is a way of acknowledging, seeing, and recognizing uh, what we're doing and what the consequences of those choices will be, and hence allowing us to make better and more informed choices. I love that. And I love that study, the Christian Ruff study as well. And I, I loved how you, you talked about how 
it dawned on me that I would check out because there's a reward pathway here and I can strengthen it if I tell the truth. And also you say that when you're younger as a child, you don't really lie. And then you go through a period of lying. And the more intelligent you are, the more lies you're capable of telling. But then it dawned on me that later on in life, if you become a radical truth teller, you actually become more intelligent again because you stimulate and you have neurogenesis. There you go. It's yeah. it's, anti, it's an anti-dementia strategy. Exactly. Like not, yeah, don't just I, do crosswords. Uh, tell the truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's free, as you say. It's not a nootropic, nothing like that. But I loved when you said about, say it's, it's with your relationship and with the radical truth telling. And by the way, just for our audience, we're right at the end of the book here. We haven't even started yet. <laughs> But I, I loved it as a parent and also in a relationship because I loved how, and we'll come to dopamine in a second. I'm pretty sure a lot of our audience know about dopamine, but I'd love to get it from the expert herself. But when it combines with oxytocin, when you tell the truth, you have a double whammy here that you even get a stronger bind with you, your brain, and the person you're binding with. Yeah, that's really true. Um, so my colleague here at Stanford, Rob Malinka, he recently did uh, some very good work showing that oxytocin, the love hormone, uh, which we secrete when we have these you know intimate pair bonding experiences, um, actually oxytocin actually binds to dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway and releases dopamine. Something we could have intuited because it feels good to, you know, fall in love, to be in love, to be, uh, to be close to other people. And that's, you know, partially mediated by dopamine. So it's no surprise that oxytocin and dopamine are connected in that way. It's a daily struggle, as you say, to tell the truth. And that doesn't mean you're going around telling lies all over the place, but it's to yourself. It's to right. really <laughs> look in your mirror and go, I'm not creating this story about the best possible confabulation of my day and what happened in that instance. So I always come out smelling of roses. But one of the problems you say is now going on to the last chapter is shame. And there's different types of shame. And maybe we'll talk about that because the pro-social shame is important to understand. Then there's kind of destructive type of shame and shaming by others around us. And I really do think because of social media, many people are afraid to show any kind of weakness or be any way honest. And when they do, they're often surprised there's no real shame, but they think there is. And often a lot of the shaming actually comes from families or those closest to you. Mm. Yeah, so shame is a really interesting emotion and probably one of the most powerful and underappreciated emotions that we have. It's pro-social in the sense that it's the emotion that has allowed us to come together in tribes and communities. We create norms around behavior and the way that from an evolutionary perspective, uh, we make sure that people adhere to those norms is by having them experience shame when they deviate from group rules and group norms. And shame is a really painful emotion that we will go to great lengths to avoid. So the hope is that we will avoid shame by uh, abiding by the group rules and norms, right? That's one one way to do it. But of course, you know, nobody's perfect or maybe the group norms are bad rules that shouldn't be in place in the first place. Uh, so, you know, we all deviate. And when we deviate, um, you know, there's kind of the internalized shame around it, but there's a lot of activity around not getting caught. Right. <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, if we don't get caught, then we don't have to feel 
the full uh, impact of that shame. It's sort of more of a subliminal shame inside of us. Um, so, you know, the key then for me in terms of differentiating sort of the shame experiences, if and when we are caught in our shame, because let's say we decide to be radically honest and tell the truth, the key there is how does the community respond? And I think if the community responds to shame in a way that allows that person to find a path of making amends for what they've done wrong and to move toward changing their behavior, then you've really leveraged shame in a very positive and pro-social way. But if instead the community reacts by, you know, basically shunning that person or being super critical or just condemning them, or for that matter, telling them, well, don't, don't talk about that anymore. Like we don't actually want you to tell the truth because we don't want to know about that. Then you've got, then you're in this cycle of malignant shame or destructive shame that really then perpetuates the isolation and perpetuates the addictive behavior. So how we as individuals, but also as communities deal with shame is, is really important. And, 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 you know, and, and changes the trajectory of people's lives, right? So when you're thinking about that from the pr perspective of parenting, I, I always like to emphasize that, you know, as parents, we should create opportunities for our children to experience pro-social shame. I think one of the things that's, that's where parenting has gone a bit awry, at least here in the United States, is there the sense that we don't want our kids to experience any negative emotions at all, because then they'll end up, you know, end up with some kind of like long-term psychological dysfunction. But I, I think that's not quite right. You know, what we need to do is when our, when our children have done something truly wrong, like you know, harm, harmful to another person or, you know, unethical or just something wrong, you know, they should feel shame for that. And when we should uh, you know, encourage that they feel shame for that, not in a punitive punishing way, but in an acknowledging way and just kind of allowing them to sit with it and us tolerating that shame too. And then working with our children together to feel, okay, well, you know, you did this wrong thing. You know, how, how can you make amends or what can you do going forward so that you don't do that again? And how can we as your parents and as a family be helpful? There was a brilliant story you shared again, radical honesty throughout the book from you, uh, the mumbles story about happy feet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. I love this. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, so so we so mumbles, you know, the this movie about this this penguin who well, he, can't, he can't sing, right? He can't sing. And all the other penguins can sing. He's tone he, deaf. Yeah. yeah, he's he's completely <laughs> tone deaf, right? And so, and I'm watching that with our daughter who I had started on piano lessons earlier that year, thinking that she and I would have this wonderful bonding experience because I love music. And I thought, oh, she's going to learn music. And we're going to, anyway, it had been a complete nightmare. You know, uh, she's, my daughter is tone deaf and has no rhythm and she's very bright. So she was able to kind of work around that and learn these songs, but it was just painful for everybody. Um, but I just was so determined that my daughter was going to play the piano. You know, that just kept kind of driving that. And one day we're watching this movie with Mumble and we're just, and then she looks at me and she goes, mom, am I kind of like Mumble? And my first reaction was like, oh, no, 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 my darling, you're not. You're, anybody can learn music and you just have to keep practicing. And, you know, uh, 
the human potential is infinite, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I thought, but you know what? That That's not true. Like she really, she is mumble and she has limited aptitude for music. I mean, she's, she's doesn't have that, you know, talent or whatever you want to call it. So I just decided I'm going to be honest. I said, you know what? I said, Mary, you know what? You, you kind of are. And this amazing smile spread across her face because it was like I had validated what was true to her experience. And this is what's so fascinating to me about humans. We think we want like the idealized version of life, but we really don't. What we want is to be seen for who we who we really are. And when we are seen and loved for who we really are, boy, talk about a dopamine oxytocin uh, explosion in the brain. That is an amazing and a really good feeling. Um, and so I could see that on her face and I knew I had said the right thing and I, I knew it was the right thing because it was true. And after that, you know, shortly after that, she, she was able to say, I'm, I'm going to quit the piano. And I was like, that, that's, that makes sense to me. But, you know, to this day, she absolutely loves music. She listens to music. She sings joyously, completely, um, you know, off the beat and out of tune, but there's no performance uh, anxiety. She's like, you know, I am who I am. I love music. I can't hold the tune, but you know, I get a lot of joy out of it. And I think that was very liberating for her and for our whole family. So I, that's one example, you know, of how to practice radical honesty, you know, and, and interestingly, if I had lied to her in that moment, I think she would have felt shame. She would have felt the shame of, of not being who I wanted her to be. Instead, she got to really experience the joy of being who she really is and, 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 and me being okay with that. That really spoke to me. I've, I've been through those moments where one of my kids was, um, he, so he, did, he was doing a school project and he did this half-assed job, but wasn't good. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, Dad, I came home from work. And he's like, Dad, what do you think? And my wife gave me one of those looks to kind of go, <laughs> isolated it. <laughs> and I was like, kind of going, how long did you spend on it, buddy? And he's like, oh, hours. And I was like, kind of going, no, you didn't. Don't know you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm in a bit of a rush. And I was like, well, that's your fault. You left the so, but right. but the less the lesson wouldn't have been learned otherwise. Yeah, right. You know, and and it's like the medals for everybody. I remember that right. they did that in his school, and he came home with a medal one day, and I go, what did you win? And he goes, oh, I got it for partaking in a race. And I go, do you think it's it's worthwhile having this now <laughs> and he's like and he, you know i i say this to my friends and i kind of go oh my god what a like i'm gonna right. go when you are truthful in the moment yeah. where you're not you're delivering it with empathy and compassion right you build trust you know that's right like i'll give you a, one for me Anna, this morning so i'm i love reading my i'm I, when I was reading about your reading, yeah, <laughs> I was right. Like, you can going, relate. Mm, <laughs> um, how am I getting on with that? But I don't. Yeah. Uh, I th I think your point in your reading was it was nonstop. You were putting your family second. You were like finding, right. you know, finding ways where it was like kind of going, "Mommy's busy," and you're right. you're sneaking it in. And right. um, but my version. Uh, my wife because I've told my wife always to be radically honest and she loves being radically honest with yes, me right <laughs> <laughs> so I think she takes I think she gets a dopamine hit out yeah right right <laughs> but she said to me this morning I was telling her about something from your book because I think it's a really useful book for parents as well and uh, she goes okay <laughs> let me tell you something you're always coming out with these little tidbits of knowledge and stuff she goes just you know when you're here just be you 
just be you. You're not on your show. You're not doing your work. And I was like, right. okay, yeah. message landed for me. So anyway, right. we, <laughs> yeah. we'll move on. Well, no, but that, that, that's a great example. It's like those little moments, you know, where we get that kind of real feedback without which we would just carry on and, and just sort of be, get more and more awful, you know? And, and so it's, it's like, what a precious gift and that you were also able to hear it and get what she was saying. Right. Um, that, that's really, that's really important. We need that real feedback. And honestly, family may be the last bastion of real feedback because in schools today and in workplaces, people are terrified, absolutely terrified to be honest, you know, because of the kind of, I don't know, culture of fear around giving any kind of critical feedback. So um, I hope, I hope we can find a way to get, get away from that. I mean, because people really, they want they want that real feedback. I don't know if you ever saw the series Black Mirror on Netflix. It was this a futuristic series. And there's an episode where you rate somebody. So you literally go and you create a, a social profile for somebody where you say you're a barista and I go, oh, Anna, here you go. Here's a 10. Great. And it right. made me think about how when when you had Uber and you had all the different car ride companies coming in free now here in Europe, for example, you had the rating of the customer, but also the taxi driver can rate you. Right, <laughs> you know, so you have right. this kind of. But also, as you know, I lecture also in college. The students rate you, and you can rate them. Yes. And there, I remember one of the other lecturers telling me, you know, they they can absolutely slate you, and you know, and I go, yeah, but they rate you before you rate them for a reason, because <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll just slate you if you go, right. oh yeah, you get a fail, and that is really dangerous because yeah. if mm -hmm. we're all going around with this fluffy unspoken truths nobody gets any better and right that's that that was something i really took from the book and we'll get to a little while to the whole idea of hormetic practices right uh, from from fasting to cold water therapy etc but let's rewind right to the start of okay the book. okay and, and seeing as we're in ireland one of the problems we have here whether we want to deny it or not is access to alcohol because one of the things about mm -hmm. your addiction to the books was the kindle the device right. always on access really right. easy access and that is one of the huge problems in our society today that's more wealthy overabundant huge consumption because it's so easy to get all these things and you say in the 1990s the percentage of americans who drank alcohol alcohol increased by almost 50 percent while high-risk drinking increased by 15%. Between 2002 and 2013, diagnosable alcohol addiction rose by 50% in older adults over 65 and 84% in women, two demographic groups who had previously been relatively immune to this problem. Now, I, I say that for a couple of reasons. I'd love you to unpack that because I know you and your colleague Andrew Huberman have done a great episode together on your book, but also Andrew has done a recent episode on alcohol. I shared it here to numerous people in Ireland, and there was a lot of like, I'm not going to watch that because they don't want to know. And this is one of the huge problems. We need to know because, as you say, any kind of addiction is like compound interest. It builds up over time and it all of a sudden has you and, and it's very hard to unravel it again. So over to you to unpack this, Anna. Yeah. So, you know, when I, 
when I think about the risk factors for any addiction, the risk factors can be grouped into three basic categories, nature, nurture, and neighborhood. So nature speaks to the fact that not everybody is equally vulnerable to the problem of addiction. Um, Some people are born more vulnerable than others. So for example, from family studies, we know that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with an alcohol addiction, you are at increased risk compared to the general population of getting addicted to alcohol yourself, even if raised outside of that alcoholic home. So these are these are robust data and I think very compelling and also consistent with my clinical experience. Some people are just born with this addiction gene. And it's probably about 50% of the risk is, is innate. But on the other hand, the other 50% isn't, right? It's learned and it's contextual. So of what does that consist? Well, there's also nurture. So how are you raised? If you're raised in a family where your parents um, display um, using alcohol or other drugs as a coping strategy, you are more likely to use alcohol and drugs yourself and more likely to get addicted. If you're raised in a family where people are not modeling that behavior, where you learn other healthier coping strategies, and also where you have a good attachment with parents and where they know where you are and what you're doing, that decreases your risk of addiction. Um, Now, you can be raised in the perfect family and still get addicted. So it's not like these are one-to-one, but these these are pretty robust data over multiple studies. But now if you look at neighborhood, what we're looking at there is access. And access to a drug is one of the biggest risk factors for becoming addicted to that drug and often underestimated. But if you live in a neighborhood where a certain kind of drug is readily available and a lot of people are using it, you're more likely to try it and you're more likely to get addicted to it. So when you think about a country like Ireland, where alcohol in ever more potent forms, right? Because we know that a lot of these beverages have more alcohol in them than previously. Um, if you're living in a, in a country or a neighborhood where, where alcohol is readily available in potent forms and everybody's drinking and it's very normalized, you are more likely to be exposed to it and more likely to get addicted to it. So I think that's important to recognize um, you know, the, the sort of the full range of those risk factors, but importantly, what what role access plays and the ways in which, you know, the modern world is becoming a place in which nearly every human a consumptive experience has become drugified in one way or another so that we're all more vulnerable uh, to the problem of addiction. Even people, you know, who aren't likely to become alcoholics now might become, you know, video game addicts or pornography addicts. So, uh, or there's cross addiction, right? Once you're addicted to one thing, you're more likely to get addicted to something else. So you give up that drug and start something new. So it really, I think, has become um, sort of the the modern day plague. I mean, I think it's not unreasonable to to go that far and say that. So that we individually and collectively all need to be talking about what is an you know a growing and an increasingly pervasive problem in in society. The pandemic was like a human petri dish in a way right. for many people. We saw lots of social experiments played out unwittingly, and many people either found purpose. They, it was the great resignation. Other people found the fridge a little bit too often because they were bored at home, and in the right. fridge they found either food or alcohol. Right. And I was shocked actually because I thought the pandemic was a chance for people to reconnect as as you talk about it's so essential for people to have a purpose because otherwise right. we wander and we find substances we're bored right. Right. and many people discovered alcohol to a higher degree during the pandemic and alcohol consumption rates went up and and i i would understand that for a little blip 
but they've gone up and they've stayed up there as well, which means more and more people are addicted or else there's more consumption than ever before. This is such an important factor because you also say trauma, social upheaval and poverty contribute to addiction risk as drugs become a means of coping and lead to epigenetic changes, heritable changes to strands of DNA outside of inherited based pairs, affecting gene expression in both an individual and their offspring. So it's a knock on effect going forwards. I thought this was a really important fact to share. Yeah, so it's it's really powerful how um, addictive consumption spreads like a virus, almost exactly like a virus from person to person through community. So it's incredibly geographic. Um, and once it's become entrenched in a certain area, especially with a certain type of drug, it can take generations to unwind that. And that has to do with, you know, the, the multi-generational trauma wrought by addiction, but also likely the increased uh, DNA or epigenetic changes that lead to increased risk in our offspring. Um, these are, you know, these are powerful findings in, in rodent and uh, mouse studies showing that, you know, addictive behavior gets passed on to children, um, at least in those animal models. So this is super, super powerful stuff. Um, the corollary or the inverse, which is fascinating, is if you look at uh, the social experiment in the United States, where um, alcohol, the, the, the export production sale of alcohol was actually made illegal during the temperance movement uh, from about 1920 to 1930, there was a huge, people often talk about that as a failure uh, because that, that led to the black market and speakeasies. And it's true that it led to a black market, but what people often don't acknowledge is that alcohol-related liver disease decreased by half in that decade. Uh, Addiction-related uh, alcohol problems decreased by half in that decade. So there was a huge positive impact, which by the way, persisted into the 30s, 40s, and even 50s. It wasn't until about the 60s, where alcohol consumption started to go up again with increased access to alcohol. And of course, now, you know, now we see us kind of a skyrocketing. So it, access and lack thereof, um, huge, huge impact on consumption. So we need to think about that when we're thinking about policy or, you know, social interventions. For example, if you look at college campuses in the United States, a growing and severe problem of binge drinking involving alcohol-related deaths on campus is really scary stuff. You know, young people going for an education and ending up uh, addicted or dead, and not just to alcohol, drugs are rampant now. Um, but many, many studies show that if those schools implement, you know, policies that make it difficult to gain access to those drugs, if they reduce the number of bars and places to sell liquor in the near vicinity of those campuses, rates of consumption go down, rates of related harms go down. So this is like a two plus two equals four, but nobody wants to look at that. You know, it's so, it's almost too simple. Um, and people, they want is, oh, let's change the drinking culture or let's educate people. And, you know, as an educator myself, I believe in education, but the truth is education overall at the end of the day has a pretty small impact. Uh, what, what it changes, what makes the biggest difference is, you know, where you create these different incentives and disincentives and making it harder for people to access their drug reduces use. It's interesting how you say about the, the different statistics and how they 
tell a story, but also they can mask a story because they're not so obvious when you look at them in isolation. So one of the things that has been marked over here in this part of the world has been because of things like my Instagram profile or my TikTok, whatever it is, right, for people, and the dom the predominant model of showing yourself as to be in fit and good shape, etc. So beer, for example, has gone down in consumption, but harder liquors that have less calories have increased. And also so has cocaine. And this is actually has gone because there's the side effects are minimal, you know, the immediate side effects, there's no hangover in the next day and all those kind of things. So younger kids are now starting to do that, particularly in things like sport, because they can be masked. So and, and I, I was struck by that, because I was like, kind of again, when I was reading your book, I was going to myself, well, one of the things for me, I benefited because others discovered alcohol when I was growing up in sport, because they kind of you had these great players. And unfortunately, they discovered alcohol, and they faded away, and you were disciplined. So you got beyond them. And now we're starting to see this kicking the can down the road type problem where I might be able to mask it in the meantime, but all the time, I'm getting more and more addicted to the drug. And the drug is more dopaminergic. And I found this I thought was an interesting thing to share Anna. is that I used to think you're in control. There's a lot of self determinism here where I actually in control of I'm I'm I don't let myself get addicted. But as you say, different drugs have different dopamine levels. So we get more addicted to certain drugs than others. This is essential information for parents for anybody out there to understand. Yeah, and there's not as much research as you would think there would be on this whole concept of drug of choice, which is this idea that what is reinforcing and potentially addictive for one person is, is not so much for another, and vice versa. So usually intoxicants are reinforcing for the vast majority of people, and they will release dopamine in the reward pathway. But again, we're all different. Some, per, some people, their drug of choice is pornography. Other people, it's video games. Other people, it's cannabis. Other people, it's alcohol. Um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, that kind of makes sense. Like if you are thinking about, you know, a, a, a tribe living in a world of scarcity, Actually, people who have this propensity to be willing to work very hard to get a reward are, i.e., people with addiction, potential addiction, or the, the you know the kind of underlying personality structure for that. Those folks would be very advantageous for a community because they'd be willing to work very hard and go very far to get their drug of choice. And you wouldn't want everybody striving for the same drug, right? You'd want some people going for the bison and other people for the berries and other people looking for mates. So um, you know it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Of course, now, you know, this, our primitive wiring is really mismatched for this modern ecosystem. And we have so many drugs and so many potent forms of drugs and drugs that didn't exist before. So now, again, even people in demographics that we previously thought were relatively immune to the problem of addiction are becoming addicted. Women is a great example. So for the most of the last 200 years, the rates of alcohol um, addiction in men to women was five to one to two to one in more recent decades. Now with millennials, it's one to one. So we are seeing as many young women addicted to alcohol and other drugs as we're seeing men. And that's totally unprecedented sort of in the history of human addiction, which has existed since the beginning of time, but now is a growing problem and is now involving you know all kinds of uh, demographic groups.
and that also we're also seeing as you i'm sure you see with some of your clients and maybe some people that you when you lecture and certainly when you do keynotes is attention spans i've noticed this where even in like i do corporate training sometimes you'll see somebody and they literally cannot not look at their phone right like for 10 minutes and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. go i i actually felt awful for the person and it was only happened once but I can see it with the students and when I teach them about habits because I, I run a module about teaching about habits and transformation and I don't think you can talk about them separately because any kind of transformation is a habit change yeah. and you when you tell them about dopamine and addiction and addiction to technology their ears prick up because most of them are struggling with this it's that's it's huge. right that's but, right but I thought Anna we'd share I just wanted to emphasize the addiction here I'm just going to take a quote from your book so this was tests done on rats in a box. And you say, for a rat in a box, so chocolate, also mm-hmm. a drug, by the way, increases the basal output of dopamine in the brain by 55%, yeah. sex by 100%, nicotine by 150%, cocaine by 225%, amphetamine, the active ingredient in street do- drugs like speed, ice, shabu, as well as medications like Adderall that are used to treat attention deficit disorder, increases the release of dopamine by 1000%. By this accounting, one hit of a meth pipe is equal to 10 orgasms. It's good to understand that we're always firing dopamine in our brain's reward pathway at a baseline tonic level. When that firing rate goes above that baseline level, that's when we experience euphoria or the high enjoyment, pleasure, what have you. And so this is a series of experiments in rodents basically putting a probe in their brain right in the reward pathway to measure dopamine firing and finding out that when they're exposed to these different substances from chocolate to cocaine, that they have a differential increase in dopamine firing, which has become a kind of, so dopamine has become a kind of common currency for neuroscientists to sort of begin to understand the addictive potential of any substance or behavior. And we know that all reinforcing substances and behaviors Um, you know, although they work by different mechanisms, uh, for example, alcohol works on endogenous opioids and the GABA system. um, Ultimately, they all have a final common pathway where they're releasing dopamine. I I will emphasize again, though, that, um, you know, these rodent findings are, it's not necessarily what what you would find in humans, right? Because we're not, we're not rats. Um, In fact, it's very hard to get most rodents addicted to alcohol. Uh, for you know, they can, it's easy to get them addicted to cocaine and st- other stimulants, but alcohol is really hard. But that's obviously not true in humans. Um, and also, again, just want to acknowledge this inter-individual variability. What might increase dopamine firing 100% in my brain, you know, might be 50% in your brain. We're going to leave it there for part one of this brilliant episode with Anna Lemke. And we're going to come back. We're going to share about the pain pleasure pathway, the importance of that. Think of a seesaw. That is the dominant model that Anna proposes. And it's really useful to understand also the pain and how pain can increase your pleasure. That is a really intriguing factor of all this. Anna, where can people find you to find out more about your work, find out about your speaking, your consulting, everything? Well, um, I mean, I do have a website, but I haven't kept it very much up to date. So that's not great. That's where I found you, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there you go. Uh, yeah. Annalemke.com, I guess. Brilliant. Annalemke.com. I will share that. For now, we're going to take a quick break. Author of Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke. Thank you so much for joining us.
Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. This show is made possible by Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and we'll see you very soon.